0: welcome to this episode of the
1: Making Theatre Podcast. My name is Bruno Poet and my name is James Farncombe and we are freelance lighting designers. This time we're talking to theatre producer Kate Packenham. She worked at the Old Vic for 11 years and was executive producer of the Donmar for six. Kate is now an
0: independent producer and creative consultant and she joined us online from her home in West London. You are right, Kate? Very well. Nice to see you both. You too. Hello, and welcome to the Making Theatre
1: Podcast. We know you're very, very busy, so thank you for joining us. So, the purpose of this podcast is primarily to try and understand a little more about what our colleagues in the theatre industry do in their day-to-day professional lives. And it's fair to say that the producer's role is only partly known to us. Could we start by delving into what your job entails? I know it begins a long time before the likes of us are involved, but where does it start? Presumably someone has to decide to do a show at some point.
2: Well, it really depends. As a producer at the Old Vic or at the Donmar, it, in a way, it starts with those spaces and with the specific business model, I suppose, of those theatres. So at the Old Vic, although it's a structured as a charity, you've got a thousand-seat theatre that you need to fill with shows that are going to wash their own face through simply the ticket sales. Yeah. And so when I was producing there, you come at it from any angle, from the director, from an actor, from a play that you really want to do, and then you try and build it, but within the context of that audience and that space. And then at the Donmar, there's a different box that you're trying to fill, mm. but you've got a different um, mission, I suppose. Josie mm. and I had a mission around pushing this sort of innovative work in that space, taking risks, pushing diversity on the stage and in the audience. and you're looking at a season of work and you've got an audience constituent that you need to satisfy. Um, in that case, it's not all about ticket sales because it's such a small house. You can't afford to run just on ticket sales. So you have a bunch of philanthropists or sponsors who are basically paying for the work. Yeah. So you need to satisfy then, you know, with big ticket items, it's going to have a famous person in it, or it's going to be a mm. famous title. And then do the much more daring, risky projects sort of alongside them so that you are managing those different needs of your audience.
0: And I presume it's the same for your your current producing work that you have to think about who's going to be coming to watch the show. And does that frame your choice of play, the choice of production? I suppose it does. I suppose everything has to be framed by that.
2: Well I suppose yes. I mean I'm in a really different situation now. So for 20 years I was working producing for two spaces. Yeah. And your thinking is driven by filling those spaces and the shape of those business models. Now I have, and this is the choice I made and the freedom I'm absolutely loving as a producer to say, right, who are the artists who I really want to work with? Mm-hmm. What are the stories that I really want to spend my time trying to platform and trying to share with audiences? Yeah. And Really, the job becomes much more difficult and easier in a way for me because you don't have a set space you're putting it into. I'm developing projects which are might be an audio project purely. Mm. It mm. might be a screen project. It might be a show that might start in a studio space. Yeah. And I might do it in partnership with a not for profit theater, or it might be a show that I do believe I'm building it straight for a West End life. Or commercial life, but the joy I have at the moment is I'm choosing the projects according to the piece of work, the story, the people, rather than the box that I'm putting it into.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So you're coming to it from quite a different angle now, and it gives you a different kind of freedom.
2: Too. I mean, it's scary because yeah. there isn't a business model.
0: <laughs> you're, you're making your own. So one I'm up. making yeah. it
2: all up, so it means you have to be quite pragmatic. I, frankly, was on salary for 20 years at mm. the Old and the Donmar, and this is really interesting. I think in terms of understanding the relationship between the staff team sitting in theatres and freelancers. As mm. a producer, I've in effect become a freelancer. Yes, and of course. so my empathy and my understanding towards all the artists I'm working with is, I hope, well, yeah, it's embarrassing to say, but it's heightened, I think, because mm. I'm doing it myself.
1: It sounds like the two the versions of that job are quite different as a producer in a building and a, as a, a freelancer producer. Uh, but. In both instances, you're involved in raising money. That's part of what you do.
2: Yes. So since I've been freelance with Amelia, which I took into the West End, the Globe production, more than Malcolm's play, which took in the West End, I raised investment for that. Yeah. And with Hamlet, the Yale Farber production with um, Ruth Negger, which started at the gate. I worked with the gate and St. Anne's Warehouse to raise philanthropy. Mm. So in both cases, although one was a commercial enterprise and one was a, a not-for-profit expedition, mm. um, both of them, I was raising involved with raising money, and I actually really enjoy that because I enjoy selling shows right. that I believe in. I wouldn't yeah. want to do it for someone else. I wouldn't want to do it for someone else's taste and someone else's projects, but you know, why I'm a producer is because I love theatre and I love seeing theatre practitioners collaborate to make stories and seeing audiences kind of um, meet them in that, you know, in that magical space. I mean, I'm very romantic about it all.
1: (laughs) Can we just dig a little bit into what's involved in that then? Because presumably you're not just cold calling
2: I did, to start with, when I was at the Old Vic, when I was 25 and I'd come out of telly, I'd worked four years in telly and got a six month placement at the Old Vic. And the deal there was that I could do whatever I wanted. So long as it was about bringing young people into the Old Vic. And this was Sally Green's kind of mission to me. Um, but I had to raise any money that I needed. So I was paid I was asked what was the minimum I could live off my like an idiot told her, and then <laughs> um and then I had the space and the brand and I had to raise my So to start with yeah i was I was asking anyone who would listen, can I have a thousand pounds because I want to do this reading or can I have five hundred pounds and it was it was a bit cold calling or, or or just sort of trying to spot people who you thought might um might have a checkbook, and actually the first time somebody a guy called Piros Vardanianis, who I'm not in touch with anymore, but he sat across from me in, um, in Pret in Waterloo and wrote a check for £10,000 to support Old Vic New Voices. And it was literally, wow. it was like, I was like, oh, I am a producer. That's it. This is it. We're starting now. That's, that, that's fascinating. What
1: led up to that? Did you meet him in Pret? <laughs> was it like <laughs> yeah. he was a lot of yeah. coffee? Yeah. That is <laughs> my <imagine> secret. That.
2: <laughs> that is, if, if in doubt, I head Look to a Pret. local Pret.
1: And I just just find a rich guy. Try and look for look for rich people.
2: Um, no, I was doing readings. He'd become involved with, um, watching the readings that we were doing. We had a a weekly a Tuesday night reading in one of the houses' rooms at the Old Vic. He really liked it, and it that didn't cost any money. I just was holding a space and inviting people. You know, that's the other thing to start with. You know, when I was at the Old Vic, I was just creating space for people to gather. I didn't actually need money because it was for other people's projects. I was you taking no ownership yours. of those projects. I was just really sure. trying to create a network and space for people. And, and you collect
1: a network as part of that then?
2: I, I, I created this project called Old Rick New Voices, which was really a little wheeze for me to meet my generation of writers, actors, directors and producers. I, I was new to theatre. I felt very insecure to come out of telly and I, it was a way of sort of getting to know Josie Rourke, James Graham, mm. and Nick Payne. I mean, they, all these writers and directors who we now see kind of running the world came through of it, New Voices, one way or another. Mm. And fundraising started when I wanted to be more ambitious. So I started a program called the US UK Exchange, where I took British writers who'd never been produced in America like Roy Williams, Simon Stevens, Michael Wynnum, took them to New York and show, worked with, partnership with theatres out there and showcased their work through readings. Mm. And then did the same with American writers here. So Lynn Nottage, a, a bunch of American writers came here and were showcased as part of that. And for that, we needed a bit of money because although it wasn't very glamorous, you know, they can't swim
0: across the, <laughs> the land. They <laughs> had to get them across the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Obviously, you have to raise money and you've got various different contexts and ways of doing it. When you're doing a commercial show, do you need to persuade the investors that it's going to make money? Is that the sort of the main conversation or is it a mix of this is a really exciting project that's artistically worthwhile? When you're working in a
2: commercial context, obviously, you've got to believe that it's going to work, make Mm. sense commercially. Mm. You know, you need to believe in that yourself and you need to convince and show your investors why you believe that. Yeah. However, the projects that I've done since I, since I left the mar and that I've done independently, commercially, really both of them, which are Amelia and The Money, mm. have had a strong social purpose and change-making mission about them. Yeah. And so actually those investors who've come on both of those journeys with me have understood that with the sort of social mission of those projects, There is more risk on the commercial side. Mm. And so whilst on one hand, the return is, of course, important, actually, the fact that Emilia was brought into the West End, that that all-female company, that that play went on to win an Olivier, Mm. or a number of Oliviers, and brought in audiences to the West End that really don't generally get invited into the West End in that way, Mm. um, was as important for my investors in that case as the commercial return. So, there's a sort of social mm. return as well as a commercial return. And I think for me now, as I look ahead to the next, you know, however many decades I, I live, because I am sure I am, hope I'll be working till I die, um, I think that that question of the social and the commercial mission, how they interact, is something I'm kind of working out and thinking about. For me, theatre is cannot be cynical. That's just, I'm sort of allergic to it. That probably makes me very naive. But, you know, you put so much of your self, your heart, your life, your brain into this work, as you two know only too well that certainly coming out of the pandemic, I feel more than ever that I need to be doing the work that really matters to me, that I really care about. It's still a question of faith in a way. <laughs> right.
0: um, Let's dig a bit into some some detail of putting on a show. I mean, how do you budget a show? I mean, we James and I come across a show from this is your lighting budget. but obviously there's a massive big picture which you somehow need to put together when you're uh, imagining the show.
1: How do you start? It's of measures a bit chicken and egg, isn't it? How do you know how do you know what you need to spend until it's designed or?
2: Yeah, in a way, every show is its own a startup. It's an it's a own little mini business model, yeah. even within the context of the Donmar or the Old Vic. That said, it, when you've got the Donmar or the Old Vic, you've got, a, you've got some set parameters that you're going to be working within. So actually often at the Donmar, the shows were on a sort of similar scale. Every mm. show had a sort of similar budget, unless it was a kind of spandangly musical. But generally the kind of shifts in the scale of the budget were around the number of actors in the show. Um, the set budgets were generally more or less the same mm. unless it became a musical or or there would be some commercial enhancement because someone thought that they were going to be able to take it into the West End, in which case they'll add, you know, 50 grand or something to the budget in order to make it transferable. But, you, you know, it's partly... What does the play ask? So, like, literally, what's written on the page that needs to be paid for? How many people does it need? Yeah. Does it need a movement director? Does it need music? What are all the elements? And the, depending on the scale of the theatre that it's going into, there'll be different pay scales or different budget scales that you need to work Thanks. to. Yeah. So you know, you start with a blank piece of paper. Yeah. I I would start with the play, mm-hmm. read the play, and work out what all the elements are, and then you work out the kind of box that you're going to put it into, the context yeah. you're going to do it in. Um, and then it's a sort of negotiation with everyone.
0: I, I always imagine it's very hard to think what a reasonable amount of money to spend on production is. And I guess it's maybe not so much even the physical things. It's a lot to do with how many people and how many weeks of rehearsal. You know, a director may say they want six weeks rehearsal, but you may have only budgeted to pay for four. And I don't know, I'm always curious about the kind of producer's role and how you add up all those different um pools on the on the money and on the schedule and on the time and on the personnel because ultimately the you know, buck starts with you in terms of making those final decisions
2: well if you think of it from the other end which is the income end yeah so you sort of say okay this is a commercial show and i can get 10 weeks or 20 weeks out of this famous actor and mm. And I can also get that show filmed by Sky Arts or someone, and I believe that I can therefore bring that amount of income against this show. Yeah. Then you work the other way around and you think, okay, yeah, and find the point at which you can take the risk. Yeah. And and equally, if you're in the in the subsidised sector, you're doing the same thing, but you're looking at Arts Council grants, mm-hmm. grants that you can you know, sponsorship that you might be able to get down because of the nature of that show.
0: Yeah. So there's a finite pot of money coming from somewhere, or at least an imagined finite pot of money. And that's the and, thing, it's an imagined
2: yeah. finite one. So yeah. that's where it's a need to face because you go, well, this musical we we believe could run for 10 years in the West End, but it, as we all three of us know very well, <laughs> it could flop after 24 performances because yeah. it just didn't, didn't. coalesce. So It can be such big extremes of risk.
1: It's a live issue as well. So it's not like you have columns on a spreadsheet that are fixed. You can move things around. I mean, if it it becomes apparent that the set doesn't cost as much as you thought, or it's going to cost a lot more than you thought.
2: Exactly. I'm a big believer in being really transparent with all the people that I'm working with about, you know, if we can save money here, we'll be able to spend it here. And let's all be part of that conversation. I think we can all be creatively involved in that
0: rather Mm. than, Mm. Siloed, mm. And when you've got investors, do you have pressure from them to make the show in a certain way?
2: I have learned that really where the money is coming from and who it's coming from is as important as the money itself. Because of the nature of the work that I want to do and because of my nature, I'm always very, very straight up and very clear why I'm doing something. Mm-hmm. and and as I said with Amelia, really understanding the balance of commercial risk and social change or cultural change that I'm interested in. And so I had one instance with a project where at the the Donmar with a production supporter, in fact it was the first Julius Caesar, the first of the all-female Shakespeare's that Village directed, Set in the Women's Prison. And a supporter said to me, I think you've got to tell to stop making all those women shout so much no one likes a shouting woman this this was a woman shouting this at me and also you need to understand that in the end men write the checks it was brilliant because it was very clear that this person was not the person to come on that particular journey (laughs) um, with me there would be projects that that person would generously support but this wasn't for them Mm. and actually knowing that is incredibly valuable because you then don't waste time trying to sell in something that is of absolutely no interest in then. Yeah, and, right. and for me as a producer, it was a massive spur because I was like, right, I'm going to make this happen. I don't agree with you. Um, and in a way, everything you've just said to me tells me why we're doing this.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, yeah, And there will be, and there were other people who could see that and who helped us, you know, do something that was, onkers on a fundraising project, you know, raised over a million pounds to build that tent in King's Cross. And I do think that project kind of really led the way for diversity and inclusion, mm. particularly women's voices in classical texts.
1: Yeah, that really sounds like a pivotal moment. In the context of your current job then, which is as a freelance producer, you don't have a venue as you did at the or the or the Old Vic. Tell us a little bit about that process of Finding the venue because I know that different theatres have different levels of um, visibility, accessibility, prestige, and so on. And also, I think probably differing associations, you know, they become associated with various types of show. Is choosing the venue part of the gamble?
2: Yes. I think the fun of my job now is thinking what is the right context? What is the venue? What is the space, both its physical space, but also the audience that it invites into that space mm. and who are the first audience that you want to meet this show because the audience is obviously the kind of oxygen to the show's growth so that first audience is is critical so i don't know if it's a i mean of course it's a gamble but it's also a it's more than that it's a piece of really important strategy
1: mm-hmm. sounds well, like it's an enormous game of tetris yeah you're waiting for the venue to arrive at the right time, and if it's a co-producer, then you've got maybe two or three venues involved in that. You might have an actor's availability in question if there's somebody you particularly want to be in it. Um, obviously, there's the superstar lighting designers. I know those guys can be very difficult. How does it all get pulled together? It just, it's it's like a huge game of Tetris.
2: Yeah, I think Richard to say, he said in his memoir whatever that running the National was like playing 3D chess. Um, how, how <laughs> I can really imagine that. I mean, running a building, running a venue is Tetris the whole time. Mm. Now, as an independent, um, you're at the mercy of, of other people's venues, I suppose. You're trying to juggle everyone's times, everyone's schedules, and the moment in time. Like, I really yeah. believe that some shows, um, you know, hit the zeitgeist. And I think that's really exciting for me. Mm. And it's an interesting thing, I think, coming out of the pandemic as well, where some people have kept the programming that they'd committed to pre-pandemic, but we're in a different world. It's two years later. So what is this world we're living in? What is the Mm -hmm. what? you know, theatre should, this is our live art. It's at its best for me when it's really speaking to the present moment, the wider context that we're living in. Um, so that's exciting. I, d- I haven't really answered the Tetris question. I think, it, yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, it just is. But it's like for you guys, you know, you're juggling this project and that project, and hoping that they're going to land at the right time. And you just have and to. Sometimes
0: it doesn't. Sometimes, sometimes it, but, it doesn't. Yeah, I guess there must. Be, is there a sort of a moment where you pull everything together, get right, we're ready, we can do it, and and it lines up.
2: Yes, and that is the leap of faith moment. Yeah, and you know, we did privacy and the vote at the donmar we we pressed the green button programmed those shows started selling tickets to those shows before we had a script in either case yeah. so some people would say you'll definitely not do that until you've got the script you've got your lead actor and you've got your venue well i mean in the donmar it that is the amazing privilege of having a venue Yes, you have got a venue you have got a business model that has a certain funding structure so long as you're confident of that Actually, you can take enormous risks mm. in terms of not having a script. and not. I mean, I'm I'm not recommending it and I'm not sure that <laughs> many people do it, but actually it turned out to be some of our, you know, the vote and privacy were two of yeah. our most successful shows. And, you know, City of Angels, which we did at the Dom Up, we didn't know how we were actually going to fit it in that space. We didn't know where the band were going to be mm. until way after we had announced it and programmed it and sold all the tickets. Luckily the shopping centre gave us a, a space. So you can get certain things lined up yeah, and then it's a leap of faith. And yeah. that's the fun and the frightening thing about it. That's the addictive <laughs> that's thing really about being yeah. a producer.
1: When we did Yerma at the Young Vic, there was one page of script.
2: Yeah, there you go.
1: And we had to design it and rehearsals started first days aside of A4.
2: I mean look how amazing it was and you know but I believe I I always think I'm basically a thrill seeker I'm a very good girl terrified person on one level but actually (laughs) the real me wants to be running off the edge of a cliff in a Thelma-Louise way but what's critical is that you're holding hands with other great people, yeah. and that you'll just <laughs> trust that someone's wings. got a parachute or <laughs> wings or something. Um, but you know, don't, don't you, I don't know what you do, don't yeah, you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing like an evening night to focus your mind as well. Do you
1: lose sleep?
2: Masses. I mean, I lose less sleep now that I'm independent than I did running the Donmar.
1: Really? What was that?
2: I think the responsibility of a building and a big staff and my heart is as a producer but as a exec director at at the Donmar you're in effect managing director of a company you've got a board you're reporting to you've got mass stakeholders your capacity for being a producer which is what I love doing and what I was doing as well and a kind of full throttle there it's it's compromised and I'm happy to losing sleep about the shows that I really and the people who I really care and love i'm fine with that but it's when you're worrying about you know insurance on buildings you know
0: so when you're putting something together i presume that a major part of the job is putting together the creative team so that's writer director designer choreographer i mean obviously as you said earlier it depends a bit on what the show demands i mean how does that start does it start with a director always
2: no it can start with the play it can start with the writer, it can start with the actor, it can start with the director. I mean, it could start with the designer, it could start with anyone or anything. It could start with a newspaper article, right? That, um, it could start with a dream. <laughs> um, so I, I think that for me, there is to set way. And sometimes, you know, there are practicalities of okay, this show, it's got to be a three hander because we've run out of money. And so, Where's that list of three-handers? Yeah. The practical sometimes has to be a, um, sometimes you start with the practicalities.
1: I can understand that it, the project could begin with a play or it could begin with a director who, uh, that you want to work with or it could begin with uh, a star actor who's very keen to do a project. It's usually one of those three things that fall into place first, surely, and, and then the creative team. So it's, it's unlikely that you're going to employ the lighting designer before you choose a play.
2: But I, yes, but I don't, Um, yes, it is unlikely. But I, I think that actually anyone in the room can come up with the ideas that will take the thing to
1: lift off. If the key person's in place and they say, well, I think I want Bruno Poet to light this show. As a, as a producer, do you ever say, God, no, we're not having that guy in this building?
2: Um. God, if anyone says, please come and work with Bruno Poet, I would be, i say, oh my God, tell me he's available. There are people who actually I don't really want to work with because of experiences that I've had. Yeah, Mm. because I do think life's a bit too short if you don't get on well.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I guess you have to work out the alchemy of a team. It is a bit of a dating agency you're putting together because it may well be you're assembling people who haven't all worked together before. And I think that's potentially quite interesting that you can see work that various people have done I think actually they might be really good as a group to come together and make a show that's going to be quite exciting I think
2: that's really the good fun bit you know look yeah. I like I love hosting a supper or putting on a party I basically think you know putting together a team of people to make a show that is you're trying to create a party <laughs> that yeah. is a creative party and then then there's a really interesting question of the producer as to how much you are in that room or outside mm. that room. Yeah, I,
0: we, we definitely yeah. need to hear about that.
2: <laughs> well, I, I think I have always felt very shy of being in the room. I don't consider myself one of the creatives and I don't want to impose, although I wish I were on, in some, on some level, so I'm cautious of not wanting to impose on that sort of what I consider a kind of magical space. I think as, I've grow, as I grow up, I realize that actually sometimes people want you in the room because what your value is is actually as a sort of audience member but that's mm-hmm. why I think I am valuable I'm a kind yeah. of uh, sort of Joe Bloggs audience member who can kind of go oh, I don't really understand you've, you've lost me here so I, I think I love most when I'm more in the process but I sometimes you just get the feeling It's not really, they don't, you don't really want us there. (laughs) And so it's best, it's best to let you get on with it. It's
0: an interesting balance, isn't it? Because I think what you said about seeing it as an audience member is actually really crucial because we can all get right up our own asses thinking about a production, um, digging into our in-jokes and our feelings about what the show is. And sometimes it's really helpful to have someone come in who knows a bit about it, obviously knows everyone involved, but can come in and go, hang on a sec. Why is she wearing that coat? But she'd never wear that coat. Or that makes no sense that the two of them would have that conversation at this point in the play or whatever. And having a bit of distance, I think, and be able to then have a conversation with the rest of the team is invaluable.
2: Yeah, and I think that is the job. But working out when to come into the space, when to leave the space, is is the sort of skill of it. Um, yeah,
0: and that terrifying bit when everyone turns around to you and goes after a run-through, so what do you think? Yeah. And you go, um...
2: <laughs> yeah. And, you yeah. know, how to give good notes. You yeah. know, I'm still learning that and up for all advice on that from all of you. Tell me what's useful for you two from producers? What's, what are useful notes and what are not useful notes?
0: I, I think actually what I find most useful is the note rather than the solution. I mm. think where it's difficult is where people who don't necessarily understand the The technique of what we're doing try to tell us how to solve it, but in fact, actually, want to know if you identify the problem or a reason that you feel like you're not engaging with this performer because they're too dark, or you can't see them, or you don't understand why it feels like this whole scene's in the middle of the night, where clearly in the script it says it's a two o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny Saturday. Then pointing out the issues is great, and you don't need to tell us how to fix it because we need to
1: wrangle with what we're doing to, to to solve that problem. What do you think, James? I totally agree. And it's interesting that the role of producer varies enormously in that respect. I suppose it's down to personality in the end, isn't it? That some people Mm. are very involved in the making of a show and you really feel like they're on your shoulder. And that's never great because you don't feel trusted necessarily. Um, You don't have the freedom as a creative. I prefer it when they're kind of present, but watchful. So there's, you know, there's Mm -hmm. someone's in the room if things, if you need help actually, or if you need somebody to feedback. And then there's some producers just you'd never see. I think the midway is probably the best. How would you des- you describe your approach? sounds like you describe it as the sort of midway. Uh, yeah. a, a willing audience member. A yeah, willing ear. I think
2: that's right. And a willing mm. ear. And I think the trust word is key in all of this. In a way, it's that I think, I feel like as a, as a parent, your job is to try and support your kids and help them to be the very best of themselves and basically as a producer you're trying to support the artists and the room that you've brought together and being the very very best of themselves and that isn't telling them how to do it it's just like making you know I do think um sounds sort of silly but one of my very early jobs I was a runner on a film set and my mum said to me just make people tea just make you know if in doubt just make people tea and I wore a big jumper that says smile on it. And I wore this jumper every day in these bogs of, of Scotland and made so much tea. And I basically think that is what I continue trying to do as a producer. You're just trying to look after people, feed people and make people feel kind of comfortable so that they can comfortably and safely take the creative risks that they need to take in order to make theatre, which is, is, is a risky business.
0: Yeah, mm. I think that's great. I think that's a great attitude. I think the metaphor of making tea is something we can
1: all, all benefits and learn from, actually. Milk and no sugar for me.
0: Please.
1: <laughs> uh, what about cast? Are you involved in choosing cast?
2: I can be, yes. Um, depends, on the, depends on the show. It depends on when the director wants me to be, right. basically. I think generally as a producer, before any offers are made, somebody comes to you and says, this is why I would like to go to this person. And you generally say, great plan. Um, Some directors, you know, Anthony Page did Design for Living. We did Design for Living at the Old Vic and he wanted me to be in every casting session, which was
0: wonderful. I love that. Yeah, see, this is a world that we never get to see. I'm fascinated by the the audition process and the casting and casting directors and all that world, because we basically turn up and get introduced to the actors, but have no idea what's happened before that first day of rehearsals.
2: amazing. I mean, seeing the different, you know, Textures that different actors bring to a role, and then the yeah. chemistry between them. I mean, I, I I'm absolute all of actors and how they can transform, but also the, how they're kind of the, this sort of essence of a of a person comes through in their performance, and how you choose which way do you want that character to
1: go. A lot hinges on faces and names. Uh, how important is celebrity to you as a producer?
2: It's probably not as important as it should be. I mean, you know, if I were being more strategic, I would probably be more concerned about celebrity. But I'm not, that's not where I come from as a producer. I'm more interested in the quality of the actor and the mm. I love I love seeing actors go on those journeys towards becoming really recognized, but I wouldn't for myself start with that's the celebrity I want to make a play with them. That's yeah. just not me. But that's not to say that there aren't celebrities or people who are very celebrated who I wouldn't love to make plays with. Of but course. You, know, you look at you look at someone like Cush Jumbo, mm. she did Julius Caesar in, back in 2012, and it's 10 years ago. She was not a celebrity then, but I think arguably she is now. It's
0: and definitely. I would
2: love to be working with her yeah. again. But that's not because of her celebrity, that's because of the actor that I've known for 10 years and think is a star,
0: really. Mm. So, we've got the cast, we started rehearsals, what's your job during the rehearsal process? You check in with the director, how the room is,
2: how the rehearsals are going, check in with the company management team, the stage management team to check that the company are happy and well, Um, looking, watching the show, the physical production develop and watch the budget with the production manager, how that's developing Mm -hmm. um, and marketing the show and trying to sell those tickets. So marketing,
0: that's that's a whole whole other world that we don't have anything to do with really. Do you contribute to the overall presentation atmosphere of the marketing campaign?
2: Yes, definitely. So you'll generally have a marketing, either a marketing agency or you've got an in-house team who will generally get a briefing from the director the writer and you on the show, on the direction of yeah. the show. And then the marketing team will come back with some ideas of imagery. And this will be way before you start rehearsals because you'll be mm. marketing before you go into rehearsals, obviously. Of then it's about, you'll, you'll have a marketing budget and you'll be working out how to spend it. So depending on the scale of the show, can you afford and is it right to do tube campaigns? Um, what's your digital campaign? And there'll be different people within your marketing team working on different things. So you have somebody who might be just doing social media. And obviously you've got a press agent who is also working alongside that marketing team. So making sure that you're not, you haven't got the kind of great big piece in the Sunday Times culture interview coming up and you don't want to spend a load of money on an advert in the Sunday Times culture on that same weekend. So you're making yes. sure that you're you're all joined up and you'll have a a weekly press and marketing meeting mm-hmm. in the build up to the show opening. And then once the show's opened um, to work out how you're
0: spending your budget. And I'm interested in how marketing's changed. Obviously, digital market- marketing must be hugely important now in Facebook campaigns and, and that sort of thing. And it feels like a mysterious world, I suppose. I don't know how you get a handle on what's an appropriate amount to spend or what's the most efficient way to spend the money on getting the word out about the show.
2: Yeah. And I think again, I mean, I'm sorry, it sort of all goes back to what's the context in which you're producing it. So if you're at the Donmar, you'll have a sort of database of people who are your loyal theatre goers. So where's your low hanging fruit? Um, That might be the regular theatre goers Mm. to the Bush or the Donmar, the Royal Court, and you sort of try and get them in first and they are your mailing lists. Or you're doing it at the, the Apollo. So that doesn't have a kind of one type of audience, audience yeah but you might be doing a show about um uh, you're doing a horror show in which case you try and go out to the people who previously went to 2.22 or mm. whatever and so you try and find those audiences who might who you know or your marketing know are i mean it's pretty basic stuff but as kind of inclined towards that type of work
0: yeah be, yeah uh, yeah And is word of mouth important?
2: I think word of mouth is the most powerful marketing tool we've got. That's the exciting thing about social, whether it's Instagram or Twitter, but how do you really galvanize audiences to get that word of mouth moving at pace rather than the exchanges on the bus that take a bit longer to kind of lead to a ticket sale?
1: Yeah.
0: So
2: that's, I think, a really interesting area of growth for us.
1: So everything's set up. The cast are in the rehearsal room, or perhaps they're in tech. You have your sea of production desks in the auditorium with everybody busy beavering away in the darkness. With huge
2: bags of sweets and maybe some baskets of fruit if you're a healthier producer, but otherwise you're
1: providing sweets. Oh, so you bring, you'll bring a you'll bring, uh, hamper? I'll bring the sweets. I'll, I'll bring, bring the hamper. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And yeah. um, when you look out across that sea, and sometimes it is many, many people sitting at desks in the dark, staring at the stage, typing away on computers. Do you feel that you have a good understanding of what on earth it is they're all doing?
2: I I have a pretty good understanding. Yeah, I have a a general idea, but I don't have a detailed understanding. And I think that's in the pressure of tech, where I think we cannot understand the time it sometimes takes um, the creative team to make things happen. You're Um, sitting there going, what's going on? Why is this taking, you know, why... um, I'm I'm sort of joking a bit but yeah I think I have a good I have a general understanding but I think you know until you actually do we all know until you actually do something
1: yeah you know very often one of the big conversations that I have with a producer is can I have an assistant uh, which of course in the states you just get as a part of the course but sometimes I feel like I have to justify that and very often it fails that attempt at justification so give me the justification um, that is, it's a big job and it takes more than one person to do it.
2: And is that, do you think you always need an assistant? No. So it's because of the scale of the expectation of the design. The project,
1: yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I, I feel like the, the person I'm talking to is not equipped, acqu- doesn't have the knowledge actually to fully understand, to, to appreciate what it is that, I, that I'm trying to do. They don't know whether an assistant's necessary or not, actually.
2: I generally trust. The people that I'm working with, if they say they need this thing, that that's, that's, that's what they need. Um, yeah.
0: I guess the hard thing is prioritising, isn't it? Because James may say he needs an assistant and the costume designer may say they need, you know, another six dresses for this lead actor. Or in, and, you know, and when there's that final pot of money, I guess you're going to be torn in different directions about you know, choosing how to spend it.
2: Totally. I mean, do you find yourselves feeling like you're fighting within the, the design for budget?
0: Um rarely, I would say. You would say rarely? I would say rarely. Um one would always want to spend more money. I mean there's always you know, the the ambition is nearly always like twenty more, percent more than the budget. But th- but then past the process of refining your design is is working to a budget, I think, to some mm. extent.
1: I might regret saying this. It's really helpful to have something to kick against. And sometimes that's a restriction of some sort, and it might be the physical space that you're working in, but Sometimes it's also the budget that you've got. You know, it sort of enc- it encourages people to be ingenious. Um, and this is something that I remember learning with Josie at the Bush. Actually, was that you know that space was a, was an awkward place to be and work, but something about the fact that it you know it was such a restricting factor meant that people had to get really clever. Mm. Uh, if you're given endless amounts of cash, it doesn't necessarily make for the the best the best work.
2: When you say, "But you always want." One always wants more money. I think we've got to be really have a really mature conversation. Somehow, have a conversation where we're like, "Is it? Is it always? Is it always the right thing?" Mm.
0: No, I, I, I don't think it is. And I think that's what what I mean is that I think the first draft of a lighting plan may be bigger than the budget because you've had these exciting conversations with the designer and the director and the show, and you sort of then try and put all those ideas down on paper in the forms of the lights you need to deliver them. And so you end up with this kind of, potentially this monster of a drawing that's got yeah. a huge number of lights. Whatsoever. And then you go, actually, we can't afford that. And that restriction means you then refine your ideas, which can probably lead to a better design than if you'd had everything. So I'm not talking myself out of budgets, but you know what I mean? It's a hard balance.
2: And then I suppose in a way that's what the producer is, you know, in a way, the the, the wimps respond is to sort of, be totally transparent because it's like okay i'll show you the problem yeah but actually because you're trying to manage that problem you've got to be the bad guy somewhere and somehow we need
0: bad guys to to put us all together That can be very
2: uncomfortable that can be a really uncomfortable place to
0: be i think but it's really important i mean we need someone in charge basically (laughs) ultimately
1: (laughs) someone (laughs) needs to be in
0: charge an adult in the room exactly Maybe going back to your parents' um, (laughs) metaphor. But it it is really important to be realistic, I think. But equally, of course, we need somebody who can listen Um, when you say, and these are the reasons that we need this extra, whatever, £500 a week for Lighting High or whatever the the number is. And this will have a big impact on the show if we can't do it. And I think producers who are open to that conversation, it's great because then often a solution can be found.
2: Parent. Yeah, I think going back to the kind of the parent thing, I really don't think the producer can be or should be in a position as a kind of parent when when it becomes the dynamic where um, the producer's the grown-up it's really weird and doesn't work. Sure, like I yeah. think everyone is on a, needs to be eye-to-eye, eye. yes, there needs to be leadership in different areas, everyone yeah. has a responsibility of leadership in a different area of the job of putting on a show, but there isn't um, I think the if once you, the producer becomes the grown-up in the room, it be- can become really combative in a way that um, parent-children relationships can, and that yeah. isn't yeah. helpful, no. Elsie. Um, yeah. So actually, I think we go back to the kind of trust um, that everyone's an adult, everyone gets it, everyone is doing their very best work, producer included, and you just, you want to be in a room with good people who yeah. you trust really mm. to um, all understand that?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's really good. And it's also possible, isn't it, that in the process of trying to justify why you think you need an extra five thousand pounds a week on the lighting budget, you discover that actually the the solution is simpler and cheaper, uh, and that discussion uh, is very useful for both parties.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, of course, it's neither. always a team thing because actually that conversation can happen with the rest of the team and the director as well can get involved and just
1: find other ways of solving things. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 So now we know a whole lot more about what the job entails. I mean, I personally have learned like 100% more than i did before. But we are also always keen to get a sense of how people arrive in the industry, where they come from and how they first encountered theatre. So where did it all begin for you, Kate? Are you from a theatre-going family?
2: Yes, I was taken to the theatre as a child by my dad. I grew up in a film and telly household. My mum and stepfather worked in film and telly. And I I was very shy as a child, but theatre was a kind of playmaking, um, was a way for me to both escape and be present in a way. And so I loved, I always loved theatre. And my dad made a lot of plays with me and my brother. Poor guy. It was just a way of stopping us fighting. So, yeah. And then I did a lot at school, wrote and acted and directed and basically just sort of did as much as I possibly could. Um, And then, sorry, I'm telling the story so badly, but basically (laughs) I went to Cambridge and was very intimidated by the whole theatre scene at Cambridge. Yeah. My first year I acted. And at the end of my first year, I directed a production of Table Manners, Alan Aitborn, in which Olivia Coleman and her now husband, Ed Sinclair, met. They were. Really, it's remarkably excellent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Funny that. You don't say.
2: <laughs> I then just got very intimidated by the whole Cambridge scene and I left university and went into telly, but I always wanted to get back to theatre. And really, I wanted to direct, actually. Okay. And at 25, met Sally Green at a party and it was very noisy. And she, I said, I want, you know, I'm talking about, I want to be a theatre director. And she said, that's just what we need, female theatre producers. You can come and work for me, and before before I realised that she had misheard me intentionally or not, <laughs> I had a six month contract at the Old Vic, and I ended up staying eleven years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it was a you know this conversation. I I'm, I feel nervous that any other producer would listen to it and go, "What does it, she talk about? That isn't being a theatre producer." She's given completely the wrong impression. I do think that every producer is different you mm. are a, yeah, you're an entrepreneur really you're yeah. um and you are very much your own your own you're an art, you know an entrepreneur sort of artist you can say and artist you don't have to be embarrassed you're, about it. you're an your artist you're going Ooh. and it's your it's, own style you know yeah. and so you're getting to know me in this conversation but you know tally pellman eleanor lloyd sonia Friedman. Um just naming the women at the moment, they'd all have very different answers to a lot of these these questions. Yeah, you'll get a very different impression of what it is to be a producer. And I suppose all of our journeys into it probably reflect that.
1: Yeah. um no, but it's interesting that it still plays the same challenges. I mean, the, the difference will be how they respond to them, I suppose Definitely, mm.
2: and why they're doing it mm. and what their what their drivers are. you know, mm. I think, yeah, everyone's got their different their own drivers.
1: And do you think you've always had a predilection for organizing and leading? I've <laughs> always been bossy. I am the L. El- I have, that's, I have, that's um, not what <laughs> six younger, brothers.
2: Six I have younger actually, brothers. I have actually five younger brothers and, and one older brother, but the older brother basically is like a younger brother. And I have a younger sister. So I have a lot of, um, I'm the eldest really. So, yes. The, the nearly eldest. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of have to, oh, <laughs> um, I was a, you know, look after her of all my younger siblings as a child. And so that's leading or actually just caring for. I've always kind of been in that role in some yeah. way.
0: Do you feel people who work in theatre are paid appropriately?
2: Where to start? Like who, <laughs> which which theatre, which context? Yeah,
0: it's very hard, isn't it? Because I, I suppose I sort of feel I am paid appropriately. Because I'm very lucky to earn a decent living working in theatre. So I've got no complaints. But Okay, well,
2: I think that the pandemic has taught us, shown us very sharply that many people are really not paid a living wage in the theatre and that it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. And a lot of friends of mine, particularly freelancers in stage management or in the the lower pay end of the industry, have said, they basically realised during the pandemic that they were doing theatre on large part for love. Yeah, And that during the pandemic, they realised that theatre didn't love them. And so they have left and gone into other industries where they're doing it for the money and the deal, the transaction is really clear. It's about the money. Mm. And they're not having to give their love. And that, I think, is very sad. I mean, mm. it's a very sad truth that I'm hearing quite a lot because I yeah. do think theatre gets away with paying, in some cases, not well because they're relying on the love mm. that people have for it. And I think that can make it an incredibly difficult industry to get into without privilege and is something that we have got to keep high on our priority lists as we come out of the pandemic and keep talking about, thinking about, working out how to solve that. And I I think there are people who have been really activated and really had their eyes open by this time. And I hope that my work going forward is I can continue to learn and make action to make it a more accessible and viable working place for everyone.
1: But I think it's a challenge. It was always going to be a scramble to get everything back up and running when we came out of lockdown. Are we actually in a position to implement any of those lessons yet?
2: Um, I think we've we've got to do it now. We've got mm. to be doing it as we come out. Everyone's trying to move at pace, but we've got to be taking the learning with us. I mean, mm. it's it's difficult to do it, to have this conversation without talking really specifically. specifically yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: It is because it is yep. sort of a general conversation, and without the context of a particular production, which we probably shouldn't be getting into, it's mm. it's hard to talk about. But I think there's a general thing where I think. Partly there's a feeling that the money is is low compared to the the time and effort expected. And there's definitely a a, a theatre-making ethos that you sacrifice your entire life and work all the hours necessary and somehow you're not a team player if you have to go home on a Friday afternoon or whatever, you know, or if you're not into coming in to rehearse all day Saturday, um whatever. You know, there's endless examples of extra extra hours and or work through your lunch breaks and all those sort of things. And there's definitely a sort of expectation that everyone involved will drop everything for the good of the show. Well, I think yes. it'd be really interesting to try and change those attitudes, that maybe that isn't the best
1: way to make a show. And that then isn't then, just producers, so is it, to be fair? That no, 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 I no, will not say producers at all.
0: Yeah. I think it probably comes not from producers. I think um, it's it's quite often from creative teams who are guilty of that more than anything else. Mm.
2: I I think one of my biggest regrets about my time at the Donmar was that I didn't really show leadership in in the way that I wish that I, that that I think that needs to be, that's what you're talking about. So I went to the Donmar with children who were one and three at the time and I felt the huge privilege and responsibility of being in that role and I felt there was a question as to whether I could do it as a mother of two small children. And I was so determined to prove that I could do the job Mm. that I really worked absurd hours. I sacrificed home life, frankly, in order to deliver the job. Mm. And that was, I think, a failure of leadership. I worked every night, basically, Monday to Thursday. I would leave home at eight and get back at midnight. And it was really a failure of leadership because the culture of an organisation is from the top, basically. My regret is that I didn't create boundaries in order to show that you don't have to work like that. Now, the, the challenge is do you have to work like that? Well, and, that's, that's I, the interesting and, and the thing yeah. is that I, I suppose if you're given a role like that, you have got to make it possible that you don't have to work like that. And that's harder to do when, when we, uh, it's exactly what we're talking about in terms of you do it for the love. Hmm. Um, uh, but it's not sustainable. For, no. the, for the individual, or the industry. I don't think.
0: I think we've all done it. We've all done those crazy hours and sacrificed everything for the show. And now you look back on it and go, "Did I really need to do that?" And because when you're in the moment, then you sort of fear that you don't want to be the weak one, the one who goes home or the one who's got who makes those sort of choices, which is terrible. Because actually, that isn't a weakness at all. I think it's about trying to find a way to balance your life.
2: But it's hard, isn't it? Because it's really hard. You know, I know the successes or the kind of impact came from that kind of level of energy that was being put into it so I'm not saying I can solve it no Um, no exactly but I I do feel as I go forwards as an independent producer you know when you talk I'm I'm not in a building my building is my own little head and my own each of my projects and I'm trying to make sure that each one that I build I you know do do it as responsibly as possible and do take this learning on.
0: You talked about hampers and fruit and this being slightly joking in in the tech. But weirdly, that kind of thing makes a massive difference to everyone. I mean, I work as you know, I do some music and I do some theater and some opera. And the way that the different industries look after their staff mm. is is very is very different. Like the the concert industry always feed all their staff all the time. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there's coffee, tea cakes, whatever, fruit, salads. It's all just available and provided. And so during the working day, you never have to worry about where you're going to go and eat. And they sort of look after you in a way that's really, that's sort of warm and makes you feel good about working there. And actually the Donmar has always been fantastic for the, um, I can't the, remember, is, family, is our it Friday, Friday family lunch? Friday family so lunch? We, when,
2: when Josie and I yeah, went to the, yeah. uh, Dryden Street, we introduced Friday family lunch.
0: And you do the same in the Domar after the first day of tech or after the dress rehearsal. Yeah. And there's something so warm and happy about things like that. I just wish that it happened on more shows. And even the bridge theatre, for example, they have in the green room, they have two dishwashers and a tea and a tea and coffee and that's constantly full. And Going and getting a mug of tea at any point is really quick and easy. And maybe on the way you have a conversation with a person at a stage door or someone who sat at his desk somewhere and that kind of thing. And having it come to a comfortable chair at the production desk or a hamper of fruit in the tech or, or whatever. It, it's weird how rarely that kind of thing happens and what a big difference it makes.
2: I mean, we're dealing with human being. I mean, we're human to human. That's what we're doing. And I think the more that we can kind of... It, feed each other to water each other you know I think they, these things do mean a lot to people and yeah I think that I mean I suppose in the film and music industries there's generally a lot more money floating around but I don't think it costs a lot to do these you know small uh, uh, Alan Akeborn at Scarborough has got everyone had in the green room a mug with their name on it so whenever mm. you arrive to work there you get your mug with your name on it. And that, that is, to me, a kind of just a stroke of simple genius because it's about
1: home. I'd forgotten they do that. They also do that lovely thing where they, uh, at the half, in the green room and backstage, they turn out all of the fluorescent lights. So there's just low-level table lights and so that everybody who enters the building is just aware of this kind of expectancy.
2: Love the, that. The show. Yeah. yeah, it's wonderful.
1: It's really, it was. I'd forgotten all about that until you mentioned that. Yeah, love that. mm Bruno. Yes. Do you think it's time for the quick fire round? <laughs> I think it probably is. Oh my God. <laughs> sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Is that when you're most productive as well? Are you...
2: Yeah, I absolutely. Oh my God. I love the sunrise. Yes. Very. <laughs> Home
1: or away? Home. Full-time or freelance? Freelance. If you could have a rider for the tech, what would be on it?
0: What kind of sweets? Penny sweets, large jars of
2: all the different, like, you know, one of those old-fashioned sweet shops with jars of humbugs and pear drops and sherbet pips.
1: Theatre or film? Theatre. What's your favourite tool? My favourite tool? (laughs) Well, that's a leading question.
2: I mean, obviously my hairdryer. (laughs)
1: fair enough brilliant (laughs) could you name your favourite play no not at all no way are you joking (laughs) (laughs) favourite colour blue most underappreciated role in theatre
2: god there are so many
1: there are so many
0: oh
2: gosh wow I don't know where to start Stage okay, well, door. I took. I went stage door. Actually, I do feel like stage door keepers. Ned at St- Old Vic stage yeah. door basically is is the Old Vic, and yeah. I think stage door keepers are such wonderful people.
1: I always make a point of trying to make friends with the DSM and the stage door keeper because it feels like those two people have the most influence on your daily life when you visit a theatre. <laughs>
2: totally, totally. I
0: totally agree. Yeah. But now the most important question, pudding or cheese?
2: Oh, really hard. Oh, I do you know what? I'm going to have to say pudding because I'm just like envisaging kind of pavlovas and things and chocolate eclairs. But (laughs) really, if you put them in front of me, maybe I'd have a big, nice, mushy brie.
1: (laughs) Well, I said cheese, so perhaps you could share.
2: Oh, thanks. (laughs) Thanks, James. You're such a gent.
1: (laughs) So, since you're the producer, you've arranged a starry post-show party with the gourmet buffet, the champagne on tap, and a guest <laughs> list of the great and the good. Uh, however, Bruno would be happy to go and refill your glass from the bar, so what are you drinking?
2: Oh, I'd like a Shirley Temple, please. It's a Friday morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna have a glassy cherry on top. Of course are you, you the, Are you getting the vibe that sort of sugar, pure sugar is pure really sugar like, is, uh, driving driving force? <laughs>
0: Fabulous. Kate, thank you. That was brilliant. Really, really good. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you guys so much for inviting me to do it. I really feel it was a real privilege, so thank you. Oh thank you. And thank you to for everyone to for the whole industry of doing these. I think they're brilliant.
1: Making Theatre Podcast is compiled, produced, and edited by Bruno Poet and myself, James Farncombe. As ever, if you have any questions, comments, or even ideas for future episodes, you can contact us on Instagram or Twitter at makingtheatrefm, or if you prefer, by email on Making Podcast at gmail.com. We are doing this for fun, and also hopefully to contribute to a broader awareness of everyone's role in the industry. So we do all the hard work. All you have to do is spread the word and take a moment to leave us a glowing review on your favorite podcast platform. Seems like a pretty good deal to me, and we'll be very grateful. Until next time, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.